Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. I'd like to start off our episode today with some tidbits about an archaeological discovery that took place in Austria back in 2008 at the Lenberg Castle. Repairs to the castle which dates back to 1190, at least, these repairs unearthed a chamber that was filled with 15th century garbage. And among these wood scraps, textiles, and leather shoes that were found in the chamber were also some linen fragments of garments that are shockingly similar to styles of bras that we wear today. And while this term bra did not yet exist, it seems that women of the Renaissance had kind of scooped modern-day lingerie designers by about 500 years. (laughs) Yes, they did. And the bras were incredibly well-preserved due to the dry conditions of the chamber in which they had resided for centuries. And while modern history would place the emergence of the brassiere to the 1910s and the 20s, there are indeed mentions of women wearing bra-like garments 600 years earlier. So Henri de Mondeville, Famed French surgeon of the late medieval period wrote in his 1312 treatise on surgery, Cerugia, of women who, quote, insert two bags in their dresses adjusted to the breasts, fitting tight, and they put the breasts into them, these bags, every morning and fasten them when possible with a matching band. So there's also other sources from the Renaissance that we can find mentions of wearing women wearing these shirts with bags into which their breasts fit. And two of the bra-like garments recovered at the Langberg Castle fit this description. They have separate structured cups that were part of a short shirt that ended just below the breasts. The third garment that was found at Langberg, however, this is the one that most resembles a modern-day brassiere. It had shoulder straps that were decorated with needle lace, and there was needle lace along the lower edge of the cups as well. So, clearly, the subject of our podcast today is the bra. (laughs) Um, But it's not the invention of the bra or the first bra, because my feeling is that this obsession with declaring something to be the first is a little bit of a fool's errand because things in history are rarely that definite. Right. And the more you learn about fashion history, the more you realize that oftentimes multiple designers were responding to the zeitgeist of their times and similar ways of thinking that resulted in similar innovations around the same time. And speaking of innovation, today we fast forward in time to a legendary line of bras that have captured popular imagination the world over. Icons of the world of lingerie design, really. Today, we get to talk about the Wonder Bra. Yeah, and 
I don't think you were joking when you said capturing the popular imagination, because recently I was talking to a a good friend of mine, Sarah Bird, and uh, I told her that we were working on an episode about Wonder Bra, and she was like, oh, I remember my first one as a teenager. (laughs) It was silver. (laughs) And I think a lot of us who grew up in the 90s can recount very similar stories of remembering our first Wonder Bra. But the story of the Wonder Bra actually starts decades before the 90s. And we are so pleased today to have Alexis Walker on the show. Alexis is a curatorial assistant in the dress, fashion, and textiles department of the McCord Museum in Montreal, Canada. And she's been doing some really fun work on Wonder Bra for some time now. And Cass, I have a little bit of a confession to make. You know, I always love a good confession. April, please confess away. Yeah, so not only is Alexis a curatorial assistant at the McCord, she's also my best friend from grad school. (laughs) (laughs) Although we very rarely these days have time um, to hang out over a bottle of wine, which was one of our favorite hobbies during grad school. I get the impression that you two are maybe a little bit of uh, troublemakers together. Maybe. We like sassy troublemakers on dress. What's that famous quote? Well-behaved women seldom make history or fashion history in our case. (laughs) Welcome to Dressed, Alexis. We are so happy to have you. First of all, Alexis, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I have to fess up a little bit. I've been such a remiss friend. I still have not been to visit you at the McCord. So I'm going to be a little bit geeky for a second and ask you perhaps to tell us a little bit about the McCord Museum and the collection that you have there. So the McCord Museum is located in Montreal in Canada, and um, we are a Canadian history museum, social history museum. The fashion, dress and textiles department, our focus is really on documenting the history of the fashion industry in Montreal. So that covers the haute couturiers who were working here, the designers, uh, the manufacturers and, and kind of everybody in between, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to discover as I think a very Canadian characteristic is no one's ever really written the history before. We've never really touted our, our own horn, say like, like Americans or, or the French have. So there's kind of a, a whole world to discover in terms of what was a really at one point thriving fashion industry that existed in, in Montreal. Cool. Um, so are you guys planning on working on this concept further um like I don't know is there a publication in the works about Canadian fashion that would be amazing um I mean I think our whole policy our whole collecting policy is based on this right so so we don't collect anything that doesn't have a a connection to Montreal so you know it has to be stuff that was and and by extension the rest of Canada but our focus is really on Montreal and, and Quebec for example at one point you know, Montreal was the one of the biggest North American manufacturing centers, maybe outside of L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so within our policy, especially for the 20th century, we, we take nothing in that doesn't have a connection, be it it was manufactured here, it was designed here, it was sold by, say, department stores or, or retailers. In terms of publication, I don't think you could even write one book on Canadian fashion history. I know there's been others written before, uh, you know, on, on a blanket theme of, of Canadian perspective on fashion. But between myself as curatorial assistant and the head of our department, uh, Cynthia Cooper, the head curator, you know, we're constantly kind of researching and writing papers and, and 
if anything, just trying to discover, right. you know, a lot of times you get something that's given to the museum with a label that you don't recognize says made in Canada or made in Montreal. And, and once you kind of scratch the surface, you realize there was, you know, this was a, a, a longstanding manufacturer, a really, you know, well-known designer, established designer at the time. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like an undiscovered world in a way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we should get to the actual subject um, of our episode today. What is Wonder Bra? And I think that a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with the brand. Um, but unless you're a lingerie aficionado, like someone with, like yourself who studies undergarments from a sort of historical perspective, I think there's a popular tendency to kind of think that Wonder Bra is a singular object, but it's not. Can you speak to that? Sure. I mean, the Wonder Bra brand uh, was was really the product of what started as the Canadian Lady Corset Company that later became in the late 60s, the Canadell Company. It's, it's actually a, a great Canadian success story, but one that even Canadians aren't aware of. I mean, every time I talk about the Wonder Bra brand, people are, are shocked to hear that, that it, it was part of Montreal's manufacturing history. So, you know, what started off as one Wonder Bra, you know, turned into to a brand name that encompassed many, many bras. The Wonder Bra brand was produced in Canada by the Canada Company from the late 30s until 2014. Hmm. So I guess what I was trying to drive home was the fact that the Wonder Bra isn't a bra. It's an entire range and line and brand of bras, essentially. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it started off as one bra, and it was actually an American invention. The Wonder Bra was was patented by a guy named Israel Pilot. In the late 30s in New York City, he had invented this bra that, you know, at a, at a time when fabric was being rationed, say, in World War II, and, and you, you know, things like stretchy fibers, rubbers, or whatever were rationed, women's bras would have been super uncomfortable because there was no give involved. There was no room for stretch. So between using kind of bias cut cups and then this patented diagonal slash, which is almost like a forked shoulder strap, he was able to create a garment that get, had some give and therefore was more comfortable. So, so the actual original Wonder Bra was an American invention, mm. but it, it really took off in Canada. You know, a, a man named Mo Nadler, um, he founded the Canadian Lady Corset Company in 1939 in Montreal and started production with this patented Wonder Bra. He, ha he had a licensing agreement with Israel Pilot in New York to manufacture it in Canada, to sell it just in Canada, and also to use the brand name. Uh, so while he was manufacturing and selling the original Wonder Bra, he, he really quickly diversified his product line to produce, you know, Montreal-designed and made bras under using the Wonder Bra brand name, but that were that were designed here here in Montreal. Mm. And, and I think um, any of our listeners will be already like very well familiar if you've listened to multiple of our episodes about this whole concept of of licensing. How did you, as a fashion historian, start working on Wonder Bra as a as a line of scholarly inquiry? Uh, it, it was totally random. I mean, I never in a million years dreamed that I was going to become, you know, this this Canadian bra expert. <laughs> I, I started working at the McCord in January, I guess, of 2015. So like I said, Wonder Bra had been produced by the Canadell Company in Montreal up until 2014. 
at this point in time, the Wonder Bra brand is owned by Haynes Corporation and Haynes at that time decided to cease Canadian production. So they were shutting down all the factories and all of the offices here to move everything to the States. So here in Montreal at one of the big plants was the design department. And within the design department, the designers who worked there had saved one sample of every bra they had made from the 1950s forward. It's really an amazing collection for that fact, right? That, That the designers, A, had the foresight to really know that what they were producing was something special and that they should be saving it. And also a really nice kind of gesture for for future generations of designers that you have this this archive that you can go back to, you know, and and uh, and learn from. So once once the, the plants were shut here and, uh, you know, there was all of these these samples sitting there, designers from Canada contacted the museum to say, come and come and take everything, old catalogs, bras, and then just some some ephemeral material too. So it kind of coincided with me starting at the McCord Museum. And it was kind of my first task given to me to, you know, by by my boss, Cynthia Cooper, who said, you know, this is this is gonna be your project. And honestly, I was I was terrified. It was like, I'm gonna screw this up for sure. I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. Uh, so, I mean, I really, it, it was, it was my first, you know, real professional museum job and, and my first, you know, real task assigned to me. And, you know, from, from 2015 for the past three years now, I've, I've been working on this, you know, through the acquisition process, but also at the same time, starting to, to write and present research on my own about different, different aspects of, of this company. So yeah, it was, it was totally by chance. It was, it was put on my lap and, and in retrospect, I'm I'm so grateful for it because I've learned so much. And and you know, lingerie history is is fascinating in that it, it really exists at this crossroads of super technical design, technological innovation, and and marketing. Like it it it's it's endlessly fascinating to me. But but was it what I envisioned for myself when when I graduated from museum studies? No, it had never been anything that was really my my field of or my area of interest, we could say. And now you've become the Wonder Bra girl. You were talking about like the intersection of technology, innovation, and marketing. And I think that really speaks to the next question, which I want to ask you. And I think you've touched on this a little bit already um, in terms of the construction, but what was it that made the Wonder Bra such a hit? And and what was so unique about it? Like, why did everyone have to have one? Well, I think, like I said, in the beginning with the original American designed bra, it was because it, it provided ease and in an era when there was no ease in a garment. So therefore, it was more comfortable. Mo Nadler, though, in setting up the Canadell company here in Montreal, wanted to make things, wanted to make garments that were affordable, like within a mid-price range, that were well-made, and that were, that were consistent. Like that no matter where or when you, you bought your Wonder Bra, it was going to, you would always be the same size, like, you know, kind of a, a very well, a well-crafted, well-produced garment. Right. At the same time, he wanted to make something that, that was attractive to women too, that made, that made women feel good and beautiful. I want to talk about the bras of the 50s, um, which, you know, is kind of the rise and uh, when these become quite popular. Um, And the the overall silhouette of the 1950s in terms of fashion placed quite a lot of emphasis on the breasts. Can you tell us about 
Wonder Bra's construction and how it played a part in achieving these very specific desired silhouettes. Okay, so I mean, for me, the, the bras of the 50s are really about controlling and shaping the body. And I think when you read ads across the board, not just Wonder Bra ads, but any any bra ads, they always talk about this, this idea of control and, and shape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's a really structured, really rigid kind of foundation to, to fashion. So, you know, the, the, the Canada company during the 50s had, had developed many kind of sub-brands. So, you know, there was one called Mischief and one called True Lift. And, you know, they had all of these these kind of trade names. Uh, the one that was most popular was this bra called Petal Burst. And this was actually the first one designed in-house. So at this point, they're still producing the original Wonder Bra, the American Wonder Bra. But under Mo Nadler's guidance, you know, he, he set up his own design department. And the Petal Burst was the first, we'll say, Montreal-designed and manufactured, purely Canadian-made Wonder Bra. This was a major success. I mean, part of it was because of its its quality and its construction, but part of it was also because of the amount of promotional effort put in by the company. I think by 1957, the pedal burst represented 40% of sales for the company. Wow. And I mean, it's it's just kind of your typical 1950s, like pointed bra um, with seams that kind of radiate out from the center of the cups. I mean, there were so many variations on this. You know, some bras have the circular stitching or, or whatever, but I mean, the, the, the basic fact is that it, that it did create this rigid and, and very pointed silhouette. And, and we're lucky that within, within this Canadell collection, within this Wonder Bra archive, I think we have, we have a few examples. I mean, they produce them in, you know, cottons and acetate satins and long line and bondo style. But, uh, but yeah, when you, when you look at Canadian newspapers from the 50s, the ads for, for this bra in particular, the pedal burst are, are everywhere. And I just want to emphasize something that you just touched on, which is that quite literally how a bra is constructed is going to form and shape and present the breast. Like, uh, you know, just like different styles of corsets could create different silhouettes, different styles of bras also create different silhouettes. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that the history of lingerie in, in one aspect, you could say, is the history of the changing beauty ideal, right? That, yeah. you know, some bras separate and lift up, some bras flatten, some bras create artificial, some create natural silhouettes. So, yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's just for me another layer of why it's so interesting. And it's something maybe maybe because it's something that's hidden under clothes. It's something that people forget about. You know, it's the same with with corsets and all of this. We're like, oh, how does this dress do that? Well, it's because the body underneath is is wearing a lot of stuff to to support what you see, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the hidden. Yeah. Um, and, and some of our listeners may remember the episode that we did uh, with Emma McClendon about her exhibition, Body, Fashion, and Physique. And we touched on this extensively, really. But there's actually, a, there's a, this element of technology that that comes in specifically into the lingerie industry and also into the swimwear industry in the late 50s and into the 60s. And that has to do with the incorporation of elasticized fabrics and stretch fabrics. Um, Up until the late 50s, they just really weren't used by the fashion industry. So when this became possible, how did this really kind of change the face of bra design? Well, I mean, I think w- within the the Wonder Bra garments that we hold, you can see a gradual change. So, for example, you know, the the first pedal bursts that we have still have this diagonal slash shoulder strap, and then you know, as you move into say 
late 50s, early 60s, you start to see the same model, the exact same bra, but with purely just stretch straps, elasticized straps. Um, but obviously, the, the, you could say the, the biggest innovation in, in all of lingerie is obviously the, the introduction and invention of spandex fibers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, while I've been working on this archive, there's people who are still alive, so who were implicated. So the designers who worked for Canadel have been amazing to me in terms of letting me interview them multiple times. One woman in particular, Raymond Tranchemontagne, she, she worked for the company between 1967 and 2012, her entire career, which that in itself is kind of unheard of, that you stay in one place within fashion industry. You know, people usually move around, and but she was there her whole career. And, and she stressed many times, like spandex fibers changed everything. I think once you have, once you have stretch, I think pattern making becomes much simpler, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these early bras that don't contain any spandex, you're looking at 50 plus pattern pieces in some cases, where once once you have stretch, once you have spandex involved, uh, you can achieve a lot more for, with a lot less work. But right. but I think there's you know there's different there's different kind of uh, problems that arise in terms of pattern making. But on the whole, I think what was stressed to me was was that obviously it's more comfortable. And it just, it simplifies production. Right, right. Um, And just moving a little bit forward in time into the 1960s, the 1960s were really this kind of great changing of the guard in terms of fashion history. Youth culture for the very first time kind of began to set the fashions rather than fashion trickling down from the upper echelons of haute couture. So how did this affect the types of undergarments that the lingerie industry was creating? Well, I think you see, I mean, I think teen bras had been around since the 20s or the 30s, right? Like you see companies, American companies or or foreign companies really promoting teen bras early. Like in the 60s, obviously it, it amps up because this is, you know, manufacturers realized how important this huge new market segment was. So, for example, in, in our archive, we have the pedal teen bra. So it, it, it's a version of the pedal burst, but but for teen girls. And and it was designed to look like the bras worn by their, their mothers, but obviously had stretchy straps, stretchy bands under the bust. It was a lot more comfortable. And I think the first time you see that in catalogs is around 1965. Hmm. We're, we're lucky to have one. I think teen clothes in general are something that's rarely offered to, to our museum anyways. So to have to have an example of a Canadian-made teen bra made us all very excited. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think that the, the, the youth culture of the 60s combined with, obviously, the, the feminism of the 60s really caused bra manufacturers to freak out, right? Like there was there was widespread crisis in the bra industry and in the foundation garment industry at the end of the 60s. Many manufacturers thought women were going to abandon bras altogether. Some people started to freak out and say, "Oh, well we need to make pantyhose or we need to make swimwear." I think this is where the CEO of Wonderbra at that time uh, the, so the founder was Mo Nadler, his son Larry Nadler took over the company after his death in the mid 60s. Larry was a Harvard MBA, a marketing expert and, and genius in some ways. And he didn't freak out. He he just started to look into to doing heavy market research, um, focus groups, this kind of thing. And what he realized was that most women weren't going to abandon their bras, right? Some did, but most wouldn't. 
what he realized was that this no bra movement was going to become a less bra movement that women just didn't want. They associated these fifties bras as almost like uh, oppressive, physically oppressive and, and trappings of a, a time that just didn't exist anymore. So yeah, I think they set about after that developing, you know, just, just bras that a created a more natural silhouette, but also bras that were just more, more comfortable to wear. And, and again, that brings you back to, you know, spandex fibers and that they were able to create these bras because of the technological innovations of, of these stretch fibers. Right. And, and we return to this again and again, and again on this show, which is like the intersection of fashion with technology and with politics, you know, because like you were saying, the 60s were this very tumultuous time and they were concerned that women themselves were going to reject what had been this, you know, very important undergarment for the past 50 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you read newspapers from from this time, and I mean, my focus was on Canadian newspapers, but people were freaking out, you know, like the, the foundation wear industry was not healthy. It was not in good shape. And I think a lot of companies went out of business because they 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 weren't able to navigate what was kind of unknown territory. Right. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is the, the genius in a way of of. Larry Nadler and side note, like the Wonderbra brand and the Canadell company flourished in the sixties and the seventies. It, it was kind of like their golden age, you know, because of the fact that he just understood that, you know, freaking out and making impulsive decisions wasn't the answer. The answer was to go to young women and talk to them. Like, what do you guys want? You know? And, and so part of it, well, like I said, was this trend towards natural bras, but the other part was that, in a way, bras up until that point had been marketed as necessity and almost as things that you should maybe be a little embarrassed about. Like you would never want anyone to see your bra, right? It was this like hidden functional garment. What they started to do also was market market some bras as natural bras, but market other bras as these tools of seduction, like mm-hmm. something that was a sexy garment. And I mean, for sure, this is tied in with, with the sexual revolution too, right? Right. Um, but this idea that that a bra is meant to be seen, it should be really pretty, it should be very sexy, and that that it can be used by a woman to seduce. Right. So it was like the bras for performance and bras for pleasure. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And I think you see in in the catalogs and all of this that that you start to see, you know, whereas in the earlier catalogs, it's really just product shots of you know a woman's chest in a in a big white structured bra. And then, you know, by the late 60s, by the early 70s, it's, you know, a very styled woman, mm-hmm. great hair, great makeup with a sh- with her shirt off in a beautiful bra with a man kind of standing behind her like, hey, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should take a break here to hear a short word from our sponsors. Um, but when we come back, I want to investigate a little bit more this idea of their marketing campaigns because I know that was very, very, very important for Wonder Bra. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? 
because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's let's get back into this, this idea of advertising. Um, these bras of the... 60s and the 70s, they were really kind of these lightly supportive undergarments, right? They were packaging the body and kind of displaying and revealing the body in a way that the bras of the 50s didn't. Um, So how did this shift in terms of advertising and marketing for Wonder Bra? Well, I think, you know, Larry Nadler, again, the CEO, he was was a, a marketing guy, he he had an MBA in marketing from Harvard. Um, so, you know, that, that was really like his specific area of expertise. And he also totally embraced technological innovation. So by the late, by the late 60s, I think it was the in 1968 was their first television ad. At this time within Canadian television, you couldn't show a bra on an actual woman. So the first bras in 1968 have the bras on a on a mannequin. Um, <laughs> you can find them on YouTube. They're all on YouTube and they're really great. But within these ads, the content was really focused just on the bras. So so girdles and 
all of these other things were no longer marketed, right? I think through market research, Larry realized that women viewed girdles as almost like chastity belts in a way, that they were they were not sexy, you know, they were almost like like anti-sexy in a way. Right. That women still liked bras as long as it made them feel pretty and it made them feel sexy. So it was almost like a bra as a fashion accessory as opposed to, like I said before, an embarrassing necessity. So in these ads, in the ads from 1968, the bras are really presented as enhancements to a woman's allure. Hmm. And and they wrote this jingle that's now, you know, this this like iconic jingle sung by men in the ad that's all sung by men. And and the jingle that, you know, the, the kind of catch line was, we care about the shape you're in. <laughs> and then wonderful, wonderful. So in 1969, the TV rules changed and, and then they were able to show bras on, on actual women. But in all of them, like these early ads, it's, you know, presented almost as like a fashion photo shoot, right? And, mm-hmm. and the woman is wearing the fashionable bra, but with fashionable accessories and hair and makeup and all of this. So, so yeah, I think what he, and, and in interviews with Larry Nadler too, what he really tried to drive home was, was this idea that, that, the bra is a tool of seduction, but it's also something to make you as a woman feel feel beautiful and fashionable and, and pretty. And I mean, throughout the 70s, they, they kind of redid the ads, you know, to change with the times as, as, you know, beauty ideal changed and all of this. Like by the late 70s, they did another one with Richard Avedon directing it. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's actually, it's it's a funny story. I think at that point, obviously, Avedon was like a god, and and you know everyone was really nervous to work with him and to say no to him. But Larry Nadler himself is a bit of a force of nature, so I think they maybe <laughs> heads. I think that he told me this funny story that the model who they chose was one of Steve McQueen's girlfriends, and he had just dumped her, so she went off into the desert in California and chopped all her hair off while she was upset. So when she showed up on set, she had short hair. They had to buy this fancy wig. <laughs> it was just kind of a kind of a disaster that turned into actually an award-winning ad. But even at that point, by the late 70s, the focus was still this idea of the like focusing on the fashion and the emotional appeal and, and the fact that a good bra gives you confidence, makes you sexy, and will will attract attract the men. Right. Right. So, um I don't I don't know about you, but I I often will wander into a lingerie department <laughs> in a store and then immediately know I've wandered into the wrong section because I'm in the quote-unquote old lady bra section. And this is a rather arbitrary and ageist distinction that I think a lot of us aren't even aware that we have, but we do. Did Canadell and Wonder Bra kind of address the market for different age bodies? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think also, you know, they addressed a lot of things because, you know, one of the things that designers stressed to me that that obviously we don't realize in the, or to maybe take for granted in this era of globalization, that at that time in the 60s and the 70s, kind of pre-global era, that you had market segmentation kind of by region, right? What somebody wanted in in Europe was not necessarily what they wanted in the US and the difference between Canada and the US. And within Canada being such a huge diverse country, you know, Quebec styles were very different from Anglo Canada styles. Oh, wow. Western Canada was behind the times. I mean, obviously the Quebecois style was always more aesthetic and fashionable and and kind of with a more connection to, to European, to French style. Ontario, for example, 
was a bit more into practical garments and not as fashion forward. And then the Western, Western Canada was like way behind the times, right? But I think when they were doing all this market research at the end of the 60s to try to figure out what was going on in the bra industry, what was going on with women, one thing that Larry realized in focus groups was that young women associated the Wonder Bra name with old ladies. Ah. It's like an old lady's garment. So what they started to do was to develop kind of a new bra range that wasn't going to use the Wonder Bra name, that was going to be marketed to women specifically 18 to 25 years old. I mean, at the same time, they still were producing these tried and true models, right? Like part of the whole Canadell and Wonder Bra kind of concept had always been this idea of consistency that you know, if you were this model number in this size, you could buy that bra anywhere within Canada at any time. You know what I mean? It's never going to change. Like you can expect the same product. So there definitely was a big part of their client base that was older ladies that did still want the same bra they'd been wearing since, I don't know, 1956, you know? And, and when you look through catalogs from the late 60s and early 70s, you know, at the front of the catalog is all of the kind of fashion forward, new, exciting bras. And then as you get to the back, I mean, you can see some styles that could be dated back to the early 1950s and there's still girdles and all of this type of thing. So I think they really were good at kind of catering to to all Canadian women and and based on age, but also based on on where they where they were living, too. That's so that's so interesting, because like I, I, this concept of like regional fashion is something that is completely foreign to us today. Like it just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, the internet has made style global and it doesn't really matter where you are anymore. Everybody kind of looks the same, right? Where, yeah. Whereas at that point, I mean, even, you know, one of the designers was talking to me about French lingerie and how, you know, they, they would often try to license certain French styles within Canada and maybe they would do really well in Quebec, but the rest of Canada just didn't, they didn't get it or didn't want it. It wasn't what they wanted. But also, you know, the difference in price point, like a French woman at that point in time was much more accustomed to paying more for lingerie. It was just a part of life. Whereas when you would import the French models to Canada, it was too, it was too expensive for North American mm-hmm. standards. Where here we would have this great mass production system that kept costs mm-hmm. down. Right. So it's, it's a it's a, 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 a it's a cultural thing, really. Like, yeah. where does where does a specific culture place their value on fashion and lingerie. I I think I read like this really interesting fact, completely unverified. This is just me pulling things out of my brain from a long time ago, talking about how some, there was, there was a survey in France and they were saying that a French women would rather give up um, some of their luxuries in terms of like going out and drinking fine wine and some of these other smaller pleasures in life, like going to the spa rather than give up their lingerie purchases. Yeah. Which kind of just speaks to the, like, the way in which the French value lingerie as a tool of seduction. Well, I mean, you can still, I mean, for me, the, you know, you can still see it. Like, French lingerie is the nicest. It's the nicest, <laughs> the most expensive, but, but it's definitely the nicest, you know? And and here, here in Quebec, like, there's some really great, lingerie shops like high-end lingerie shops and and those women when you go in there you know you can still get fit for bras which never happens in you know a department store anymore um but but their 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 mindset is very much like you know you north american women have 20 bras from victoria's secret and they're all crap 
right? What you need to do is you need to spend $300 on two bras. And then you wear one one day and you wash the other one that same day and you just go back and forth. Like you don't need 45 crappy bras. Like you, you really just need two or three super fine bras, well-made, beautiful, all of that. So, right. I mean, I kind of like, I kind of like that mentality, especially nowadays with how wasteful we are, you know, we just buy all of this cheap garbage that just ends up in landfills. Why not yeah. put it on, on, uh, on something a little more elegant and, and better made? I don't know. Absolutely. No, I mean, I've incorporated that into my own life and this has probably happened since the last time you and I saw each other, but I really now only buy vintage or buying from designers that I know personally. So um, that's kind of like my little, my little personal effort to that <laughs> cause. For sure. It's a big problem yeah. nowadays, the, the wastefulness, the wastefulness of fashion, but that's a, that's a different, that's a different podcast. That is a different <laughs> podcast. We will get to that at some point. We're going to take another sponsor break. And when we come back, we're going to learn a little bit more about the contemporary incarnations of Wonder Bra. So you mentioned, Alexis, this line, like a secondary line that was marketed to, you know, 18 to 24 year olds and how they were reconceiving the concept of the bra according to market research. Can you tell us a little bit about this and and, and what shape or form that took? Okay, so, you know, like I said, at the end of the 60s with this crisis in the, the foundation wear industry and the market research that, that Canada undertook, you know, they realized a few things. Like I said before, they realized that women wanted less bra, not no bra. They wanted something, young women wanted something that created a natural silhouette, that young women were more interested in naturalness than say this sexiness. Mm-hmm. And that young women associated Wonder Bra with old ladies. So so what Larry realized at this time was that, you know, they, they needed to develop kind of a, a different brand identity. And, and the different brand that they developed was this brand called Dicey. I mean, if you think about the, the minimalist bras of the late 60s, they were, they were lightweight. They were made from these spandex or, or fabrics containing spandex, you know, lightweight jerseys and nets and all of this. They were minimal, but they were still cut and sewn garments, you know, like if right. you look at, say, Rudy Gernreich's no bra, it's still a cut and sewn garment, even though it's minimal. So if you think about the evolution of that style, you know, as things got more and more minimal, obviously the logical next step is to create a completely seamless bra cup. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this coincides also with the changes in outerwear, like, you know, by the early seventies, jerseys and knits and all of this were very fashionable. So, so you needed to have seamless bras underneath or no bra, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I think the the first, this idea of molding, right? Like hot molding cups, bra cups to create this seamless garment had been around since the early 60s. Like if you read Women's Wear Daily, for example, you can find all of this excitement in the industry around molding technology. But it's kind of first incarnations in the 60s weren't successful. Consumers didn't understand it. People didn't know how to market it. And also the technology was rushed. So you had cups that were that were scorched, fabrics that were itchy, poor fit, inconsistency, all of this. It wasn't until kind of the early 70s that a French company, Wheat, had had commercial success. So, so they they were the first to market and sell these molded bra, minimalist molded bras. 
they were really fashionable. They were really sexy. But according to the Wonderbra designers who obviously bought them to study them, they, the, they were inconsistent. The fit was super poor. They were expensive. And also just the difference in production between North America and France, like delivery times were erratic. Mm. Delivery times were slow. And people here, retailers were just like, we can't, we can't deal with this, right? It's too, it's too um, inconsistent. So Larry realized that this was where these bras were going for young women, that young women were going to, were all going to want these minimal molded bras. He tried to secure licensing with the wheat company. They refused him. But while he was visiting their factories, he figured out the technology. He figured out what needed to be done. So when he came back to Montreal in the early 70s, he set up two task forces at Canadell. They incorporated designers, salespeople, engineers. I think they even hired a sculptor from the Université de Montréal to, to, to design molded breast shape. <laughs> <laughs> so so over, over a couple of years, while they were working on their regular product lines, these two task forces set about to try to develop a superior molded technology to what existed in, in France and elsewhere. And, and they succeeded. I think after a lot of hard work, talking to, to again, designer Raymond Tranche-Montagne, she said it was it was the most frustrating process, but through it, they, they learned so much. They developed a superior molding machine. They were able to create a mid-range priced bra that fit well mm-hmm. and, and was consistent, that still kind of fit in with the wonder bra kind of obsession with fit and consistency. And the marketers, the marketing side of the task force, developed this brand name Dicey. So they, they picked that because A, it sounded good in English and French. They created a little rectangular shaped cardboard box that had dice holes cut out. Like it was supposed to look like a a, a dice, right? So you could feel the fabric inside. And and then the marketing behind that was really, like I said before, how in the late 60s they were marketing bras as this tool of seduction. These dicey bras were marketed as um, an with an emphasis on lightness and and naturalness. Mm-hmm. So the slogan for for this set of bras, Dicey, was was called uh, Dicey or Nothing. So so it was really kind of playing on that. Yeah. No bra trend, you know. Either you wear no bra, or you wear one of these molded bras. They also produce television commercials for these bras, uh, in which you see a woman very natural walking on a beach in jeans and a t-shirt with her Dicey bra, and then almost an animation of one of these bras coming out of a box and transforming into a dove that flies away. <laughs> symbolizing symbolizing you know the the freedom of of this garment and uh they were a huge success with young women you know they and and they developed a a huge product line i think you know at one point when you look through catalogs there's 10 15 different dicey models and i think by 1976 these were introduced on the market in 1974 by 1976 the canadell had doubled their sales oh wow between from before and after, um, you know, it, it became, it became a a best-selling bra for them also. And I think after, you know, this initial period of, of trial and error, they were able to apply their molding technology to the wonder bra line too. So how can you make a bigger cup that, you know, for a woman that requires more support for the older wonder bra customer, they were able to figure that out too. So by the late seventies, when you look through catalogs, there's the dicey bras in the front, and the tried and true models in the back were starting to show these molded cups 
as well. So, so yeah, it was, it was a, a great success for them. And, and something when you talk to the designers, when you talk to Larry himself, like everybody is, is to this day still very proud of what they were able to, to accomplish. Cool. So Wonder Bra is actually still in production today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the contemporary incarnation of the Wonder Bra? Sure. So Wonder Bra ceased to be a Canadian owned or managed product in 1980. At mm-hmm. that point in time, uh, you know, Larry left the company and and the Haynes Corporation took over. They still kept all of the design offices. Everything was still within Canada. But from, from there forward, it was really not really truly Canadian product anymore. So in the, in the mid-60s, as part of this product development based on the market research on this idea of sexiness, the Canada offices in Montreal and the designers here created this style called the 1300, the Wonder Bra 1300. That's now, you know, in, the, in, in bra circles is this like iconic bra, <laughs> Canadian bra. So it was, a, it was a very sexy plunging push-up style and at the time, it, it was a, a huge bestseller, right? Because it really did cater to, to women's want for, for this tool of seduction. Um, some of the ads at that time, too, were so racy, considered to be so racy, that stores had to take them out of their windows, right? It was because of this, this super sexy bra. So, so this 1300 had been sold in Canada since, I think, 1966. At that time or in the 90s, sorry, uh, you know, Gossard in the UK, the Gossard company had licensing agreements with with Canadell to produce, you know, multiple Wonder Bras there, um, one of which was the 1300. So it had been it had been around for a while. But for whatever reason, you know, in the early 90s, this bra took off in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I think it's iconic. I think anybody who grew up in the 90s remembers this bra. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, when, when I did research, some people said maybe it was because of, you know, British Vogue promoting push-up styles. Maybe it was because of designers like Vivian Westwood or Jean-Paul Gaultier promoting, you know, really underwear as outerwear. But, you know, around, I think it was around 1994, this, it took off in Europe. And that now iconic ad, the Hello Boys ad with Eva Herzegovina in it, I mean, that's the 1300. She's wearing this bra from 1966. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there's one famous quote by Kate Moss, too, saying, you know, those Gossard wonder bras will even give me cleavage. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, so so at the same time as that, in 1994, the Playtex secured licensing for the, the 1300 for this wonder bra in the States. And it also took off there. So it almost had this, like, international renaissance in the 90s, by chance because of fashion changes. Right. Um, so I think that's where, like, for Americans and Europeans, that's what you guys think of Wonder Bra, right? Because of because of this one from the mid-90s. But but for me, it's just, it, it's a testament to the designers that something that was created in 1966 was still totally marketable and a huge bestseller with minimal changes done, you know, 30 years later. Like, to me, good design is always timeless design and and something that that was made so well then, you know, kind of exploded once again everywhere else. So from some sideline discussions that you and I have had, um, it's my understanding that this parent company of Wonder Bra, Canadell, was very special for several reasons. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about the corporate culture at Canadell? I think it has a lot to do with Larry Nadler, who, you know, inherited the company from his father uh, it was already 
very successful by the time he inherited it in the mid 60s. But I think it was just his approach to business. So, you know, he almost had this like computer like brain. So, you know, anytime there was volatility, anytime there was changes, he didn't freak out. He just really did market research and focus groups, like just try to find the answers. I think he also created a corporate culture in which he was seen almost as like, I don't know how to say it. He, he viewed himself just as a facilitator, not so much as a manager, right? He just made sure that he hired people around him from the designers to the marketers to the salespeople who were so good at what it was that they did that he could kind of leave them to discover and, and develop and figure things out on their own. Like he was there to be a leader, not, not somebody who was like, do this and do that. I think he was always willing to take risks. He was always willing to, to embrace any kind of technological innovation at a time where maybe other people weren't. But then at the same time, I think from, for me, the most inspirational thing was talking to the designers themselves. So most of the designers who worked for Canadel were French Canadian. And I think that really, you know, having, having that background, that cultural background really helped to create, you know, beautiful, stylish products. I think at that time, as we were just saying, the difference between, you know, Anglo and, and Francophones was maybe much more pronounced. I, I, I don't know. I think that the, the design department in itself was a place of innovation, that they always, they always scheduled time for innovative free design right? They would, they would work on their tried and true models. And then every once in a while, the head designers would say, okay, everybody just design whatever you want without thinking about production, without thinking about money, just do it. And, and from practice like that, they were able to discover things, right? So maybe we take a little bit here and a little bit there and adapt it to production capabilities. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So true innovation. Yeah. I think the whole company from, from this through the sixties and the seventies was a place of, of great innovation. So we are actually quite literally approaching our time limit. Um, but is there anything else that you would like to add about Wonder Bra before we sign off? Cause we only have a couple minutes left. Um, I think the fact that it, that the story of Canada is an immigrant story. Right. The, the founder of the company, Mo Nadler, Larry's dad, he was a first generation Canadian. His parents were, I think, Romanian Jewish immigrants to Montreal. He started working at the age of 11 to help support his family. And, and I think, you know, went from shop boy to president of his own company through hard work, through good business sense and all of this. And, and, and you know, Canada was a huge company here for a while. They had four factories. So, you know, here's a man who started with nothing who builds this, this, you know, bra empire, who employs Quebecois people who in turn support their families. I, I think to me, in this day and age, where there's so much anti-immigration sentiment, I think a story like this can really show what giving people a chance can do, that it can benefit everybody, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. We love those stories on Dressed. Yep. So... <laughs> Thank you, Alexis, so much for being with us today. When the heck are we going to see each other? That's what I want to know. Hey, come, come to Montreal. Or, <laughs> I'm, I'm overdue for a New York trip, too. It's, yeah. always, it's always fun, but a bit damaging on my, my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to sign off and say, see you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. April, I really appreciated that last point that Alexis made about Wonder Raw being a lovely immigrant success story. The Nadler family built that company from the ground up and owned it for approximately 85 years. 
Yeah, it's a great story. And I have to say, Cass, until I invited Alexis to come on the show, I didn't know any of this history behind Wonderbra. Me either. So despite the fact that I've been a professional fashion historian for over a decade now, I'm learning lots and lots of new things just making the show. So it's really cool, and it's such a treat to learn things right alongside our listeners. Agreed. And that's all for us this week, dress listeners. We hope you give a little extra thought about the design of your skivvies next time you get dressed. We'd like to thank our fabulous team of producers who make this show possible each week. Holly Fry, Noel Brown, and Casey Pegram, who works his magic when we make our mistakes. For images which accompany each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, each week we post suggestions for additional reading on our website, dressedpodcast.com. You can also write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.